Welcome to the Lights Camera Sports Podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. Hello everybody, I'm your host Mike Galtieri. Happy to have you on board for another week. Well, this week we are joined by Drew Gallagher, a coordinating producer at ESPN on college football, also Boston College graduate of 1999. He was the man who produced the piece, The Man Behind the Red Bandana, featuring Wells Crowther, who tragically passed away on September 11, 2001, at the World Trade Center. So we go into that story, examine it, and uh, talk about what that story and that piece means to him throughout this podcast. So a very interesting podcast. Please stick with us. First, let's hear from our uh, podcast sponsors, Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Lemon Pizza, and then we'll go right into the podcast. I'd like to remind everybody, if you're a BC football fan, you should be a member of the largest fan club on the Boston College campus, the Boston College Gridiron Club. Go to bcfootballgridiron.com for more details and to sign up. All right, we'll go right into it. As always, thanks so much for listening. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Uh, but we are lucky enough to have a BC grad on the podcast today. Also coordinating producer, college game day, and many different events and uh, publications, ESPN. Drew Gallagher joins us. Drew, thanks so much for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. And what we're going to focus on today is one of your features uh, the man behind the red bandana, uh, Wells Crowther. Many people, I'm sure, have heard the story, and um, there might be some who haven't as well. But thanks so much for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast on uh, September 11th. Of course, Mike. Happy to be here. Drew, first of all, let's just learn about yourself. You grew up outside Philadelphia. Uh, did you play sports growing up as well growing, uh, before you went to BC? Yeah, I did. Um... I was mostly a baseball player uh, through high school, and, uh, you know, those dreams kind of went away uh, when I picked BC, um, and, but I still had a passion and a love of sports, and I knew that uh, whatever my career aspirations were going to be, sports was, was going to be involved, so uh, thankfully BC provided a lot of opportunities to get into uh, sports journalism, which is what I was interested in, with uh, WZBC Radio, The Heights, doing some, uh, you know, I wrote for BC hockey, football, uh, worked a little bit for the Bruins. So, um, you know, BC kind of put me on the path to, uh, to a career in sports, uh, sports television. And when you were in high school, what made you uh, choose Boston College? Were there a couple other schools you wanted to go to? How did it all break down for you? <laughs> it's actually really the, uh, you know, I think the, the admissions were, you know, you had to, by May 5th, you had to say where you were going to go, put in your, deposit or whatever it was and the night before i'll never forget i was weighing between syracuse which uh actually uh, had a small sort of 
scholarship available for me to, you know, nothing great or anything, but to, to do some journalism there. And then Johns Hopkins, which uh, I got, in, got into to play baseball. Um, but neither of those felt right, like the way BC felt, like just the campus, the, you know, the vibe in Boston and everything. And I sort of just kind of banked on uh, the fact that I could just come to BC and kind of be able to do whatever. And uh, ultimately decided not to do baseball, to uh, concentrate on the other stuff. And, uh, you know, I ended up being good with that, one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah, that's great. And so you were in the same class as Wells Crowther. You guys lived at Duchesne East. That's actually where I lived freshman year as well, over on Newton campus. Uh, just give us your thoughts on Wells meeting him and uh, what, what he was like at BC with you. Yeah, Wells, you know, well, yeah, we, Wells and I were in the same dorm. Uh, I was in the basement. I think he was on the first or second floor. I'm not sure. But um, we were definitely friendly. Um, I wouldn't say we were, you know, great friends, close friends, but he was on the lacrosse team, and uh, I had some roommates who were also on the lacrosse team. So a lot of mutual friends. We'd see each other, you know, at campus events, parties and whatnot, and uh, you know, have conversations, say hi. You know, we knew each other. Um, but he was just sort of one of those guys that you see and, and give a hello to as you're going through campus for me. Um, very friendly guy. Definitely, you know, didn't have an air about him. You know, he wasn't like an didn't have sort of a, um, you know, wasn't like a prima donna athlete or anything like that. He was a guy who got along with everybody. And I think by the end of his senior year, he had kind of gravitated, um, you know, sort of spread his circle of friends outward beyond the lacrosse team and was really kind of like kind of coming into his own as a person. Um, and even after he graduated from BC, um, you know, things I learned about more after the fact about what he was doing and everything. He, he was, it, it's one of the sad things. It was, it was a, a guy who was really just sort of starting to find his way in the world. And all I could say about Wells was he, he was a guy that you would just, you were happy you knew. Yeah, no question about it. That's like you said earlier too. Like any other guy you would see at O'Neill Plaza, Conti Forum, just a regular B, seemed like a regular BC alum from what you told me. Uh, regular BC guy and BC alum as the years passed. Mm-hmm. And we played a little intramural hockey together here and there, and that's why you know when I heard about what happened to Wells, and I, I found out maybe a week later. Um, or a few days later, I'm not even sure the timing, but, uh, you know, first we found out um, right after 9-11 that, that, that he had died. But it wasn't until the following March or May that we that the story kind of was uncovered about what he had done and how he had saved so many people so heroically. And when I found out that part of it, the thing that struck me was that I, I was so proud that, someone I knew was capable of doing something like that. Like, you know, you see people every day, especially back then, like, like I said, he's a guy you see among so many other people on campus. And the fact that like he had that heroism and that courage inside of him and no one, no one necessarily knew it until the time came. And you find out all these things after the fact that let you know, of course, Wells did that because that's who he was. You know, he, he exemplified stuff like that in little ways all throughout his whole life. Um, and that was sort of part of what we wanted to tell in his story was how, you know, how he was raised and, you know, what he was doing on the athletic field, uh, the kind of teammate he was, kind of all 
um, all kind of culminated on that day, September 11th. Well, Drew, Drew, that's a great segue. Let's just stand, uh, go back and let's tell people about his story from the start. Uh, Wells Crowther grew up in Nyack, New York, uh, pl- you know, played a lot of sports, uh, was always around the firehouse. His dad worked at the firehouse as well. And the, his yearbook quote, just to give you an example of the person that he was, it was, there's no I in team. Uh, that was his yearbook quote uh, from Nyack High School. Then he went on to BC, uh, played lacrosse. And uh, just, Drew, take it, on, take it from there and talk about the story and uh, your ESPN production, uh, the, man, the Man in the Red Bandana. Well, I mean, that's uh, why you mentioned the yearbook. Like, there were so many little details like that that, you know, in doing the interviews with his parents and spending some time at his house and researching the story, getting photos, getting video, getting any sort of documentation they had of Wells' life, that you, you just sort of uncover these little kernels and learn more about him. Again, like I said, I... You know, I was friends with Wells, but there were so many details of his life that, like, like I know him so much better now. And um, to me, that was just, it was important to personalize him in as many ways as we possibly can, possibly could. Um, so once we did all the research and we, and we conducted the interviews with, uh, with his family and with his teammates and people he you know, worked with at the firehouse and, and everything, um, it really painted such a, picture of a of a guy who was meant for something bigger in life and a selfless kind of guy and it all sort of made sense and at that point i mean really the the story kind of came together on its own and i you know i always say this this was wells's story i mean all we did was you know put the pieces together and we had the, the platform to get it out there but um wells wrote this story and what he did his whole life and on september 11th yeah, and, and take us just take us back if you could to the audience out there and summarize uh, what happened to him on that morning, September 11th, a sunny day just like today, um, 16 years ago. Yeah, I mean he was working for his equities firm uh, in the South Tower of the World Trade Center, and uh, the North Tower was the first one that was struck by a plane. So as soon as the tower was struck, he actually called his mother Allison and left a voicemail, and we had that voicemail um, in the story we did. Uh, and he said he was okay. Um, after that point, um, the South Tower was hit, and uh, Wells sort of sprung into action. He, uh, you know, all these details were kind of uncovered after the fact, because what he did was he put on his signature red bandana. And a red bandana was something he carried with him when, from when he was a child. His father, a volunteer firefight, uh, firefighter, had sort of instructed him to always have a bandana with him, so it sort of became his trademark. And, um, you know, in a New York Times article that was written nine months after September 11th, there were details of survivors who said that they were saved by a man in a red bandana. And his mother read that article. She Obviously, um, knowing her son, she said that's, that's Wells. And she contacted the survivors and showed them... Um, pictures of Wells, and immediately uh, two of them said, yes, uh, that was the man who saved me. And so through other accounts and, um, and, and whatnot, they sort of pinpointed that you know, he saved at least 12 people uh, through, I think it was three, three trips uh, from the South Tower Sky Lobby down to the 60th floor. He went down and up three times, escorting 
various groups of survivors to safety. Um, ultimately, he could have followed them down. He could have gotten out. But ultimately, he chose to go back up when others were going down. And he, uh, uh, he was found months later. They found his body in the uh, South Tower lobby next to other firefighters, sort of next to a, uh, an area where they were sort of a, a response center. He was working with the other firefighters. He was a volunteer firefighter himself growing up. And so in that moment when the towers were hit, as his father liked to say, he kind of put his equities trader hat off and he put his firefighter's hat on and he got to work and he did what came naturally for him, which was helping others. Yeah, you know, that, that, was, that was the amazing part. And, you know, as you mentioned, he was on the 78th floor uh, when that plane crashed in that South Tower. He helped the people uh, down to, to the 61st floor. Um, what the names of the, the ladies, two ladies you interviewed, escaping my mind right now. What were their names? Do you remember? Uh, one of them was Ling Young, and the other, um, you know, he, he saved Judy Ween. Judy Ween, yeah. He didn't actually speak with Judy. Um, we spoke with her husband. Um, Judy uh, does not do interviews, and we we absolutely respected that. But um, her husband spoke on her behalf, and he had talked to her in the hospital that day after she got out and she told him about the man in the red bandana who saved her. And, uh, and that was, that was Wells. It's just amazing how Wells mother read that in the New York times six months later and was able to pinpoint, uh, her description of of that and to make the connection right there. And what a moment for her and what a moment for her and, and for the people who he saved to, to know, you know, for her to know that her son, died a hero and for them to know and give an identity to the man who saved them. It, it, it was, it was very powerful for everyone. And I'm, you know, as I was watching your, your video and re- thinking about it, reading uh, Tom Morelli's book, he, the 78th floor, he takes him down to the 61st floor. He could have very easily, I would assume, keep kept on going and probably made it out. All right. Uh, but absolutely. I just wonder, when, just if you could, we were in his mind, but what do you think in Wells made him turn around and go back up? I, honestly, I, I've thought about that before. Um, you know, who, who knows if he knew how structurally uh, in disrepair the towers were. He, might, he may or may not have known that uh, such danger was imminent, but I'm not sure it would have mattered. I think in that moment, he did what he was trained to do, to help others. That's, that was all he knew. He knew he was capable of helping others. At that point, he was, you know, he was healthy. He was physically able enough to carry, um, you know, he carried, I think it was Ling, down the stairs. Um, you know, for him to do otherwise would have been to go against everything he was trained to do his whole life. As you're speaking of that, talking about other services, self, uh, service to others ever to excel, uh, those are like the, the the ideas of Jesuit ideas that BC's built upon, you know. So he obviously took it to the ultimate ultimate extreme uh, by risking his life on nine eleven. No doubt, and um, you know, but again, I, I think it was just something that was, you know, from from his childhood. Um, that was sort of who he was. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum.
CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! What I thought was interesting as well, in the couple months before he died, I remember there was a story about him talking to his dad. He was an equities trader in New York on the 105th floor of the South Tower. But he was saying how, you know, he's kind of, if he was in front of a computer the rest of his life, he, he was not going to be happy. He was thinking about changing careers and thought about becoming a firefighter. So in, in a way, it comes full circle. He was basically working as a firefighter uh, on that day. Yeah, and in Tom Rinaldi's book, he goes into uh, a little bit more of a detail of that exact, uh, that exact you know, focus. It was, I th- after the fact, his mother found in his room, uh, I think he had an apartment in New York at the time, found an application to the FDMY that Wells was working on. So he was clearly, um, you know, thinking of getting into that anyway. So, like, you know, and after the fact, the FD- FDMY, uh, I think a year or so later, named him an honorary, honorary member. Um, but that, you know, in the end, he died kind of doing what he wanted to do. Yeah, we, you're right. When you think about it like that, it's just it, it's quite an amazing story. Now, 16 years later, and uh, let's let's just talk now. It's a tough transition, but to talk about how you went uh, in terms of making the the ESPN the documentary, the feature on you know it's still on YouTube. It's one of the most popular ones, I would assume, ESPN's made. Uh, just talk about the logistics that went behind that getting. Uh, Ed Burns, Tom Rinaldi evolved, and how it all happened. And I, I read too that you also there was some skepticism in the beginning of making uh, the, the documentary, the film, uh, the production of ESPN uh, right off the bat early on. Just just go into all those details, Drew. Yeah, um, it was right around 2005, 2006 that I first pitched doing a story um, on Wells, and at that point I had just uh, become a feature producer at ESPN. But I was. I was, a, I was sort of a green feature producer, and this was an ambitious pro- project with a little bit, you know, the ties to sports, um, you know, there was, there was not a great tie to sports it, other than the fact that Wells was a lacrosse player and sort of the same leadership he showed on the field was the same leadership he demonstrated on 9-11. Um, and I think at that time, you know, we were thinking to do a little story with the anniversary of uh, the five-year anniversary of September 11th. And I think at that point, um, there was a sense of kind of people wanting to, to move past a little bit. To, you know, it, it had, the wounds were still fresh, um, and I think it wasn't the right time. Um, but then come September, or excuse me, uh, 2010, um, it felt a little better then. The 10-year anniversary was coming up. Uh, I had done a lot you know, bigger projects by then. I came, you know, I came in with a formal plan on how to present the story. Tom Rinaldi and I had worked together on other stories. He had bought in. He, you know, he really wanted to do it. So 
we pitched it to our bosses then, and uh, and they were in, and and off we went. And the, the biggest thing was to get the interviews uh, with the survivors. Um, Ling Young, we had to uh, talk to and earn her trust. We sent her a handwritten note, and we met with her before we did the interview, and just to, so she would understand that we weren't trying to exploit Wells' story at all. And then also to have a corroborating witness in uh, Jerry Sussman, who had spoke for Judy Ween. So uh, Jerry Sussman is Judy Ween's husband. So uh, once we had those pieces together, um, we were able to tell the story. The Crowders were unbelievably you know, supportive. Um, obviously, it's not easy for them to tell their son's story and bring up some of those memories. But uh, at the end of the day, um, they want to see Wells' legacy live on. And uh, so they were terrific. I had a great team that I worked with. Um, the, one of the best editors that we worked with, Tim Horgan at Bluefoot Productions in West Hartford. Uh, great camera crew, Mike Balaka, Greg Herdeman, two of the best in the business. I mean, we had, you know, I, this was certainly not a project I did by myself, and we had some some really talented people behind it. Tom Rinaldi, who wrote and reported on the piece, but did not voice it. We got Ed Burns to voice it. Um, again, he's a New York voice. We just wanted to make it feel a little bigger. Um, and he was awesome, great to work with. So all the pieces came together the right way. And I think, you know, we told Wells' story. You know, even when I look back on it now, I think we did it respectfully and truthfully and and, uh, you know, I'm proud of it. You know, and I remember my time at ESPN. It's tough to get a couple minutes devoted to any story. I believe th- your story was about 14 to 15 minutes long. So th- that shows you right there how the importance of it. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I credit, you know, the executive producers we were working with at the time for, for giving that it that amount of time and recognizing the significance of the story and trusting that we would be able to do a, a good job with it. But, again, I mean, it's Wells' story carried the day. It was well story. Talk about, too, in the couple days immediately aftermath, the, the reaction that you got. I remember BC played UCF uh, down there, and they, they honored him with red bandanas. And then the following year, uh, the great win against USC on that night. The Wells' parents were there. Uh, and across the country, just talk about the reaction that you got uh, in the days and months after. Yeah, I think you know the UCF reaction, it still might be the – the one that stays with me the most. I think it was the week right after the piece aired. And you have to imagine, you know, that, that was how I knew that the story had resonated. Um, this was an away crowd. This wasn't at BC. So there was a, a Facebook campaign for all the students at UCF to, to come to that game in red bandanas to, to honor Wells. And... They came out in full force. The entire you know, UCF crowd was wearing, uh, was wearing red bandanas. And Wells' sisters came down for a presentation on the field. And that blew my mind. Um, for, an, for a visiting crowd to just spontaneously do that, it, it, no one told them to. It was kind of like a, a viral kind of thing among the UCF fan base. Um, that was one of many instances like that. I, I heard from classrooms around the country, teachers who use the story, uh, you know, in their curriculums. Um, I'm always blown away to this day of, of how that story resonated. And then, of course, the next year, as I mentioned, the big win, a BC, a heavy underdog at home against University of Southern California, USC, um, and they defeat them in the Red Bandana game, 
you know, BC had 452 yards rushing uh, that game. It, it, there was so much emotions. The parents, the crowd, their parents spoke to the team afterwards after that win on national TV, ESPN. Uh, so I'm sure that stuck out with you as well, too, the following year. It was unbelievable. Uh, for me, funny story about that game, I was actually flying back from uh, Fargo, North Dakota. We had just done college game day there. And I was in air watching the, the game on the ES, you know, watch ESPN app, it was called back then. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there in row, uh, you know, 27C, pretty much crying my eyes out. And people around me kind of looking at me wondering why. And it was because, you know, I'd seen Jefferson Crowder talking on the sidelines, red bandanas everywhere, all over the stadium. And then BC pulls off the monumental upset. And, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it, though. You, you really couldn't script that. It was such a great moment for the Crowders and for the school. And then a big one for me, too, in the aftermath, the dedication of the 9-11 Museum. Uh, President Barack Obama speaking at that. Wells' parents were there. Uh, Allison spoke as well. But uh, the President Obama making reference to the Her- Wells' story on national TV in, in that setting, is, uh, to me, that really struck a chord. That this story has gone all the way up to the presidential level. That was mind blowing. Uh, <laughs> I was watching that. Uh, I was watching that day, uh, that morning, uh, the press conference from President Obama. I, kn- I knew the uh, the Crowders were going to be there and they, they were going to be part of it. But until you hear President Obama, the, you know, saying Wells' name out loud and telling Wells' story to the entire country. Um, I just sort of was sitting there. Like, I just couldn't believe, you know, I, I was so happy that, that people were talking about Wells and that the president was doing it nonetheless. Um, that, that's what I love the most, the fact that the story keeps telling itself in different ways. And, you know, there's, there's a, uh, a documentary out right now that was directed by a, a man named Matt Weiss. Um, and I think he had Gwyneth Paltrow narrated. He did. Um, you know, there's, so many different ways that Wells' story is getting out there now. It makes me so proud. I think it's important. I think people need to know uh, what he did. Of course, too, you mentioned the documentary, the book, The Red Bandana by Tom Rinaldi. You can also get is out a great book, in-depth look as well there. Uh, and you're right. It, it just keeps on spreading and spreading. Quick question. You got me thinking as you were talking. If Wells Crowther's alive in 2017, uh, Andrew, what do, you th- what do you think his life's like? What, what is he doing right now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, if you if you go by sort of the, the way his path was, was going, he probably in 2001 would have taken the steps to become a member of the FDMY. Um, and given the fact that, you know, he was such a leader and kind of well-educated one at that, I think he would have risen the ranks very high. I think, he, you know, uh, I think he'd be in a position of leadership either in the FDMY or maybe he would have you know, gone to some sort of outside company. But... You know, I know he probably look. He probably have a family right now. He probably has some kids right now. You know, he would have just turned forty years old. Um, you know, he'd be doing all the things that uh, you know so many of his classmates are doing right now, and that he wanted in life, and he ultimately didn't get to do. Um, but I think if he was faced with that choice and that option. You know, in the moments that happened that morning on September 11th, I don't think he would have done things any differently. Yeah, well said, Andrew. When you know, continued congrats. What what a great 
piece that was on ESPN. And I believe me, I know how tough those are to make, produce. There's so many elements that come into play, even outside of what viewers see and getting interviews and all that. Uh, you know, I know you've done a lot of ESPN, but uh, just continue. Congrats on a great job, and uh, with all that production. Thank you. Yeah, and I, you know, love the story will, will always be something that you know, probably probably in my in my whole career that I'm most proud of. And uh, it's it's again, it's has nothing to do with me. It just has. It's just because any way to get Wells' story out there is, is a good thing. I'd like to remind everybody, too, they can check out uh, CrowtherTrust.org, uh, RedBandanaProject.org as well. Am I missing anything else? I know also BC does the, the, the 5K Red Bandana Run as well every fall. Uh, and that's... The Bandana Run every October. There's a golf tournament uh, in Wells' hometown, usually uh, beginning of September every year. Uh, all sorts of events. Well, Andrew Gallagher, BC grad, 1999, ESPN coordinated producer, uh, college game day. Where are you headed this weekend, by the way? Uh, we are headed to Louisville, Kentucky this weekend for Lou, uh, Clemson and Louisville. So good, good ACC matchup there. Great. Well, maybe BC can turn it around the corner in the next couple of weeks and maybe uh, get BC back up to college game day as well. That was one of the highlights. I'm looking back at my time and you know seeing the BC come to Kansas. It was against Florida State in 2005 and Mark Herzlick. Uh, what a great show that is and a great production. Thanks so much. Yeah, appreciate it. We'll, we'll be keeping our eye on the Notre Dame game this weekend, too. Hopefully a little better than Wake Forest. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Well, Andrew, once again, thanks so much. Andrew Gallagher, uh, the Red Bandana, the Red Bandana Project, thanks so much for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports Podcast. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Well, thanks so much to Drew Gallagher of ESPN for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. I think it's always important to never forget 9-11 and, of course, the Wells Crowther story. I'd like to remind everybody, if you're a BC football fan, you should be a member of the largest fan club on the Boston College campus, the Boston College Gridiron Club. Go to bcfootballgridiron.com for more details and to sign up. Thank you again for listening to this Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. I'd like to remind everybody, if they want to join Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Love and Pizza and advertising on this podcast, just email lightscamerasportsads, ads, at gmail.com. That's lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again next week. This is Mike Galtieri signing off.